0: Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing a TV show that is almost too big, too beloved, and too influential to describe in a single sentence. It is one of the granddaddies of modern science fiction and one of the greatest TV programs of all time, and it's a mission statement for humanity that continues to excite, guide, and inspire billions of people to this day. Helmsman, set a course for Star Trek, the original series. Star Trek premiered on September 8th, 1966, and showcased the adventures of Captain James T. Kirk and the stalwart officers of the USS Enterprise, including Executive Officer Spock, Chief Medical Officer Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, Chief Engineer Montgomery Scotty Scott, Communications Officer Neota Uhura, Helmsman Hikaru Sulu, Navigator Pavel Chekhov, head nurse Christine Chapel and Yeoman Janice Rand. Together with the rest of the nearly 400 other crew of the Enterprise, our heroes traveled through time, space, and other dimensions on behalf of the United Federation of Planets, bringing together alien civilizations, plumbing the depths of the unknown, confronting Federation rivals such as the Klingon and Romulan empires, and contending with strange and even godlike entities inhabiting the cosmos. Star Trek's episodic narrative varied wildly in its tone, style, and subgenre, from straightforward space adventure to high-minded allegory and everything in between. The result was something that was often brilliant, sometimes terrible, but rarely the same thing twice. Unfortunately, the show's high production costs Weird network scheduling and ratings led to its cancellation by the end of its third season, after a total of 79 episodes. But the show was hardly over. It entered syndication almost immediately afterwards, and there it found fresh success and a much larger audience of fans whose enthusiasm for the show built the foundations of what would become one of the most titanic media franchises in history. Next to come was the Star Trek animated series, followed by the live action TV series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks. There are three additional shows, one of them animated are currently in development, and there's a fourth that's been announced as well. Along the way, Paramount has produced 13 Star Trek feature films, six based on the original series, one that bridged the gap between the original series and the Next Generation, three more based on Next Generation, and three based on the so-called Kelvin timeline, which is basically a reboot of the original series. And there are another three movies planned or in production. Altogether, Star Trek has sold more than $10 billion worth of merchandising and generated countless tie-ins, books, comics, music, games. It's got a fan convention circuit that is practically an industry unto itself, and it's generating a very large body of impressive fan-produced creative content. The cultural impact of the show has been immense, with its many catchphrases becoming English-language mainstays. Its fictional science has pointed the way toward real-world breakthroughs in technology. And its vision of a diverse and multicultural future has inspired civil rights champions around the world. But to understand what makes Trek so compelling, we should look back to the beginning and to the philosophical narrative and thematic blueprint set by the original series. It was a space Western, something creator Gene Roddenberry once described as a wagon train to the stars, but it also evoked the age of sail with its sense of adventure of large ships that were communities unto themselves and the challenge of projecting established interests and values deep into the unknown. It captured the various dreams and nightmares of the 1960s and put them forth in a tapestry of allegory and metaphor that crafted more than a shared universe. It created a modern mythology. Not bad for a show known as much for its cheesy sets and over-the-top acting as it is for its finer qualities. There is hardly a writer alive today who hasn't been impacted in some way by this show, and I'm really excited to get into it now. With me today is Red Shirt Human Resources Liaison, Chris Crenshaw. We need to have a meeting, Captain. (laughs) Triple salesman, Tom Hespos. I'm
1: going to slap Cabbage Patch on these things and make a
0: mint. (laughs) And Starfleet Academy burser Joe Pace.
2: A lie is a very poor way to say hello.
0: <laughs> Everyone, welcome, welcome. So, Tom, I'd like to turn the mic over to you for the first moment of truth. Uh, this is an episode I saw again recently, really quite enjoyed, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So can you walk us through the episode you've chosen for your moment of truth, talk about what happens in the episode, and then talk about where your moment of truth comes out from this
1: sure sure my moment of truth comes from the naked time which is a great uh, and funny episode about a disease that manages to get itself back to the ship the um enterprise sends a uh, landing party not an away team yet a landing party <laughs> down to the planet's surface to uh you know of course get in touch with yet another thing that they've lost contact with and it's you know a dying planet they get down there and uh this scene does not hold up very well in uh you know the covid universe but
0: uh
1: (laughs) 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 investigate something he wipes his. don't touch your face don't touch your face after taking his gloves off a second time yeah uh and you know ends up taking an infection back to the enterprise and This is a serious infection, but it also happens to have some pretty terrific side effects of basically getting everybody on the crew drunk. <laughs> so you have all these people running around just displaying all this outlandish behavior. You get this guy uh, Riley who
0: you know, <laughs> starts
1: going off on like how he loves being an Irishman, ends up locking himself in the <laughs> hearing. <laughs> <laughs> and not letting anybody in while he basically trashes the ship and, you know, head to I'll take you whirling home, toward the planet. Kathleen. <laughs> Kathleen. One more time. <laughs>
0: it was so good. It was so funny when I saw it again. I was laughing out loud at that. It's I'm sorry, so go ahead, go ahead. Good. It's ahead, like Tom.
1: everybody's you know acting drunk <laughs> for you know half the episode first <laughs> chapel goes and and professes her undying love for spock you know who later is headed down the hallway openly weeping which is something <laughs> you never see from a vulcan of course but uh uh oh my god so many different things happen and then sulu <laughs> this this is everybody could see this image in their head i'm sure shirtless sulu going after crewmen down the hallway with a fencing foil (laughs) it was one of the coolest images i think i'd ever seen (laughs) and i'm watching this show by the way as like a very young kid this was something like I, ne- I never missed Star Trek in syndication. Like when it came on, I was in front of my television and I very rarely missed it. Yeah. Seeing like Sulu charging at crewman down the hallway with a fencing foil was great. You know, later, which is where my moment of truth comes in, he makes it to the bridge and just grabs Uhura like he's going to save her from <laughs> bridge crew (laughs) uh, you know uh captain kirk on one side and and you got uh you know mr spock on the other he's sort of like distracting him while spock slips into air and gives him the first instance that you see on television of the vulcan nerve pinch yep and that drops and this is where my moment of truth is because like there's this little dialogue between kirk and spock right there (laughs) kirk who says this a million times during the rest of the day he says you need to show me how to do that sometime." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then you get this great, like, character-breaking line from Spock, who basically uh, points at Sulu, who's lying in a crumpled heap on the ground, and says, "Take D'Artagnan here, down to Sydney." <laughs> Something you would never hear, you know, a Vulcan or like Spock say, and yet, you know, it, it was just such a great line. I guess they had to throw it in, but like that was my yeah. moment of truth right there. I mean, it was—you have like a, a series that's usually very serious and yeah. really has a lot of great like social commentary, you know, riding along with it. And then, you know, every once in a while, you get these like little fun episodes, Mm -hmm. like the Naked Time, they cast such a like a lighthearted sort of connotation on things that it's just so refreshing to see this crew and, uh, you know, the Enterprise crew in this kind of a situation. Yeah. And, you know, even the little, you know, four or five year old me who was sitting there watching it in syndication just thought it was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely loved it.
2: This is only the fourth episode I mean, yeah. this is this is early this is early on. It's like an and- early episode
0: yeah, but, to have this yeah, kind of Bill, you and I
1: saw this in the same way. It was like you know channel eleven WPIX out of New York.
0: yeah, New York. yeah, real quick shout out to yeah, I, <laughs> Tom, real quick shout out to channel eleven WPIX New York, the oh. greatest channel in the New York area for awesome syndicated great stuff cartoons every afternoon, Star Trek every evening, Ray Harry Harryhausen on the weekends, Kung Fu Theater. For a young geek growing up, Channel 11 WPIX was freaking Nirvana and Shangri-La rolled up in one. It was 11 fan. Alive, man. Eleven alive was the best. Yeah, All right. Sorry.
1: Yankee game too, but uh, we won't get into sports. But anyway, I, I I just
0: had to get that call out out there. Move on. <laughs> well, <laughs> Moving you, on. You sorry. know,
1: we, you know we, I saw it in syndication, just like you did. And, you know, they never yeah. show the episodes in any particular order. You would just get. Right. Them, so, you know. Yeah. It was a huge
3: jumble. And yeah. that, that I think, makes the effect on us a little bit different than it must have been the first time because it's what well, the fourth or fifth episode depending. Yeah, it's on the fourth the if you count
2: the cage. Yeah, exactly.
3: But I mean, you know, we we see Spock early in the show, very early, being emotional, and and that may not have seemed like a big deal at the time, but we saw this in syndication. I imagine all of us did, and and so the character was established to us out of order. Yeah, Star Trek is like a a picaresque novel. It's not a narrative. And and so the order of the chapters doesn't much matter. No. uh, To to the experience and to the understanding of the characters. And I I think that the way we saw it must have been more powerful seeing Spock that way.
0: All I know is that moment Tom's mentioning is, uh, I had kind of a a weird relationship with that on my rewatch recently, because I watched it, the first i'm going through and i kind of wasn't paying as close attention to it so i actually missed that d'artagnan line yeah yeah yeah, yeah the, the d'artagnan line and so i came back and watched it again this morning and i was knowing what to look for and i caught it and i i laughed out loud because the way it's delivered and Leonard Nimoy is like he's visibly agitated like there's just a it's like not just a character breaking he's like ticked off and that whole scene is so great because you've got riley he, he's like committing like Irish terrorism by song on the entire ship. Cause he's locked down the engineering bay just singing nonstop. He's, he's hilarious. The actor is making a meal of it, right? Yeah. And he's just yeah. going off. He's like, There's more songs. And at one point, like Kirk is like, oh God, no, please. And like you can tell, like he <laughs> inspires. Yeah, they're so done with the mayhem around them.
1: <laughs> when this- the Riley thing is just hanging there like tension throughout like most of the episode, he's having a good old time there and yeah. yeah. like crashing <laughs> the ship. Like, God, he's outside trying to cut through the bulkhead
3: with the damn <laughs> yeah. phaser.
2: <laughs> but the best part is too, like at Riley has said, like, okay, I'm the captain, and he takes over the communications and he says, like, okay, there's gonna be a dance tonight at the, at bowl the bowling
3: alley, alley.
1: right? And bowling alley, alley. Of- yeah, somewhere now we know the Enterprise has a bowling <laughs> alley. right,
2: but when they finally break in and they get him, they turn around, he just looks up and he goes, No dance tonight. Again, that's it, <laughs> that's his take on the whole thing. Yeah,
0: at one point, he's like, he's issuing double ice cream for everybody, like, it's just uh-huh. and. The one thing that killed me is when he goes, "Yeah, dance at the bowling alley," and you see Spock up on the bridge. He's like, he doesn't even dignify it, like going, "We don't have a bowling alley." He just goes right past it. And I thought, like, that's how far around the bend we've gone. Like, Spock, Spock can't ordinarily oh, have <laughs> bowling alley. There's no it.
2: question that there was a bowling alley. But <laughs> the other thing, that, the other thing is when they, you know, early on is Tormalin, who's the crewman who's with Spock on the on the away mission, who takes his glove off to touch yeah. his face and then touch the virus thank you very much for your taking your mask off at market Idiot. and and when they go back up and he's in the dining hall and he sits with sulu and and riley and yeah there's a really cool interaction there because good acting tournament and he's going like yeah why are we out here like you know man shouldn't be in space this is yeah. wrong and, and yeah. there's like a lot of a lot of heavy material in there and yeah both sulu and riley are like dude what like calm down
0: the one thing I loved about this episode was how the nature of this funky disease, once you get past the humor of basically, this is what it looks like when you have a kegger on the, entire, <laughs> the entirety of the Enterprise. But a lot of these people, it's like like when you get drunk, it just strips away your veneer. And so you're seeing some true qualities of a lot of these people kind of emerge. And this is a guy, like, I love this notion, like the first guy we see is a guy who's got second thoughts about why I'm even this far from home. Should we have been out here? And they could tell, like, there's this gnawing fear at that crewman that, you know, like, I, I don't know if I should really be out here or not. I thought that was really cool. They led with that, and before they went to getting into more like Sulu has always just wanted to get in sword fights his whole life, you know, and all this other stuff that's so fun. That initial thing I thought was really moving and really interesting. Kind of sets the fact that yes, it's funny, but it's also dangerous. Like people are going to get hurt, and he hurts himself. He kills himself, actually. You know, accidentally. You know, it's he has a tragic end.
2: But then he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to live.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: but you get, you get so much character development, which is why I think it's fascinating you know for the fourth episode they aired, you know if you take the cage as the original pilot that wasn't picked up and then starting yeah. with where No Man has gone before, mm-hmm. this becomes the fourth episode of the original series that there's so much character development you know Sulu is the swashbuckler, Spock with the duality of his psyche between being a human and Vulcan and that beautiful scene between him and Chapel where, where she says yeah. I love you and he says, I'm sorry, which for me is right up there with I love you, I know.
1: yeah
2: <laughs> I love you, I'm sorry. Yeah, You get Kirk's love of the Enterprise. Never the he, he, he expresses yeah. the fact that this is the love of his life. And for the next three years, we're going to get him romancing space babes in their tinfoil outfits, but none of them approach his love affair with the ship that he commands. Yeah, Although it and, should
3: be pointed out that he loses her twice in the first season.
2: Yeah, but he gets her back. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a thing, right? Like he always gets her back. Yeah. But then like, you know, it's just beautifully done. Yeah, and for so much character development for us to understand who these people are, it's pretty well crafted for such a young yeah. series. So often in the first few episodes, it's so hard to get your arms around a series, but they do a pretty good job of establishing who their characters are and what the right. narrative is going to be.
3: Yeah. I mean, even Riley, Riley, who ultimately it was he in like three or four episodes. Um, Not that many, yeah. He was he was actually one of my early favorite characters. He was great.
2: We get him in the Conscience of the King. He plays in the
3: yeah yeah yeah. Uh, I had an artist friend in high school who we were doing a going to a, a Star Trek convention. She was drawing portraits for everybody to take to get signed by somebody or whatever. I asked for a portrait of Riley. Was he there? I think maybe he was. I think this was signed at some point. I, I've just always loved that character, so I, I I have a real fondness for this episode. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot
2: of establishing shots too. I mean, you know, Tom mentioned it's the first Vulcan nerve pinch. It's not not the first one filmed. It's the first one broadcast which yeah. let me be a geek in that but then we also get the first view at the jeffreys tube when scotty goes into the the, the tube you know the the, mm-hmm. the, the access top matt Jeffries was the set designer who was a miracle worker on a limited budget for the sets that they had and they named the Jeffries tube after him
0: <laughs> did they really the, that's cool scotty goes into
2: the tube to like you know do wiring yeah <laughs> and that's the first episode where we see that where we see that particular set.
3: That, that's awesome and they must've used that thing
0: 20 times. That's oh, like- a million oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, no, they, they knew how to make a mile out of this stuff. I thought this episode was an interesting counterpart to this side of paradise which is, I think, later in, I think it's later in season one or season two, which is, again, another one of the the crew collectively loses their mind over something, right? You know, they go down this vegetative world, they get dusted with these spores, yeah. and they basically, they, you know, basically they're high the entire episode, right? And they're just, like, completely in the state of euphoria. That wasn't really a funny episode. That was more, I actually was more bittersweet, because it gets to the point, really kind of, that one boils down to Spock, who kind of, for the first time, is able to let go of this, struggle he has between his human and Vulcan selves. It can simply just, it, it just appreciate being with someone. And at that point he's like, no you know, it's the only time I've ever been happy, right?
2: Leilani Kolomi.
0: Yeah, and, and like that was, but that was like a heavier episode, but I actually enjoyed this one more just because the hijinks were funnier, but also it was just like, the crew had to collectively solve their own problem. Whereas with this out of Paradise, it was basically last man standing, figures out how to fix the problem then cures it for everybody. So it wasn't as good, but- Well,
2: Kirk, Kirk essentially fights off the spores from his love of the Enterprise is what yeah. it comes down to in that one
0: yeah exactly which
2: is yeah. a little bit of a you know design machine uh.
1: i love this for a couple other reasons though there, there's just the, the big one though is like i identified with spock there's like this part of this where you know like all the bridge crew you know like the people on the actual bridge like it's really <laughs> obvious that like all of them are pretty much affected by this yeah and like spock's like yanking people out of chairs it's just, like <laughs> It's like every night of sober driving that you've ever had in life, and you can see yes. the frustration on his face. You know, here is this like emotional, you know, half human, half Vulcan guy, like, but you could see he's getting like really visibly agitated yeah. during the movie. Well,
2: every Lieutenant night of sober Riley, driving, that's Lieutenant so rely, re, re, Report to sickbay and it's security. Lieutenant Riley is headed to sick bay. see that he gets there. See that he, he gets there. there. You know, all yeah. right.
0: He's he's just like having the hardest time hurting these cats, and like he's like, man, I guess.
2: He's like asking Ahura to take navigation this far
3: from using some sort of racial epithet. You
2: know? There's humans.
0: Yeah, there's an alternate reality version where he just nerve pinches everybody. Like, like he's just Drop you get a pinch all. and you get a pinch. It's like him and two people, and that's it. You know, the whole show. But the funny
2: part is that once once Spock gets infected, like he loses. It.
0: Oh, big like time! He can't he function. He loses a harder. Function. He probably loses it harder than anybody else, to be honest. You know, he's got more. He's got a more complex, you know, psyche to, to oh, overturn. So guy, when, yeah. so when it goes bad, it goes real bad for Spock. Like he's he's one of those. He's kind of like a glass cannon in that. Everything car, is know,
2: just under the surface for Spock, and so yeah. when that veneer is gone, yeah. he's got nothing to fall back
0: on. Yeah. So I think that's a perfect uh, chance to to segue into our next moment of truth, which is mine. And the episode I picked is Amok Time, which is the season opener for season two. And in the episode, Spock becomes increasingly emotional, hostile, and erratic. And he requests an uncharacteristic shore leave on his home planet of Vulcan. Kirk doesn't understand what's going on. Kirk actually has orders to not go to Vulcan. He's got to go somewhere else. So to go to Vulcan would require some bending of the rules. Uh, but McCoy suggests to, to Kirk that Spock is having some sort of biological issue that's going to kill him if he doesn't get the back to, to Vulcan. So Kirk, he goes, okay, he breaks the rules so he can get his executive officer and good friend planet side. And once we get there, we get this proper introduction to Vulcan culture and the experience of this Vulcan thing called Ponfar, which is a mating ritual that male Vulcans have to do every once in a while in which they must mate or else they will die. We're watching through the eyes of Kirk and McCoy as they go down to Vulcan and it's just like this crash course in the parts of Vulcan culture that simply don't get shown to off-worlders. And Spock, we learn, is betrothed since childhood to the Vulcan maiden T'Pring, who clearly has not got a lot of love for Spock and prefers instead this beefy consort named Stan, who's kind of off to the side. Before the wedding of Spock and T'Pring can be sealed, T'Pring evokes these ancient you know, right of Calife, which is a physical challenge to the death between two suitors and to Pring chooses Kirk as her champion. And so suddenly our captain is thrust into this life and death struggle. He does not understand against a friend. He does not want to fight, but he is bound by the laws of Vulcan society to do these things to the kind of Vulcan matriarch is overseeing things. And she's a really big deal. She's the only person who's kind of turned down a seat at the Federation. So she basically is the ruler of Vulcan. Kirk is like, I got to obey the law in front of her. So he's involved in this thing. And right off the bat, Kirk realizes he's in over his head. The atmosphere of Vulcan is not to his benefit. Spock is already stronger than a normal human. He's got like basically sexually fueled roid rage. He's just going bonkers. And Spock takes care of Kirk pretty quickly. The fight is relatively short and brutal. And after it, Spock is cast aside by T'Pring anyway more or less arranged the whole thing so she could be free of Spock and pursue Stunt instead. She's got every possible outcome figured out. And Spock, who's once again of a clear mind, accepts this as a logical scheme. He doesn't really hold it against prank too much and you know returns to the Enterprise to accept his fate. And there he learns that Bones actually drugged Kirk during the fight to only appear dead. And so once Spock sees his captain and you know is once again alive, he bursts out with this uncommon and actually rather human display of joy when he's like Jim, you are alive, and it doesn't last. And he very quickly returns to you know his usual logical self, much to the entertainment of both Bones and and Kirk. And they kind of you know return back to their daily business. So that's the episode of a mock time. I love this episode quite a bit. For me, I think the moment of truth really gets down to the moment that Spock kills Kirk because this is an episode I remember seeing as a kid. It was an episode that I remembered in parts. And the part I remembered was the moment where Spock finally wraps this like this belt weapon around Kirk's throat and and chokes him out. As a kid, I was thunderstruck. I'm like, wait a minute! How can the good guy of the show get killed like this? Like it just didn't it didn't compute at all. And of course, the story's got this pretty convenient get out of death free card for for the characters. But as a kid, I was kind of astonished seeing these two friends fight. It just it just really threw me, and sort of stuck with me, you know, through through the years. And it's it's a moment I I really really like. But this is a great episode that offers a whole lot more. It's 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 the first deep dive into one of the kind of the tentpole alien cultures that makes up the Star Trek universe. Now, you start to see what exactly it means to be Vulcan. And for Spock, what it means to be only half Vulcan, right? So that was pretty interesting. But then you also got to see, I think, just this is an episode that featured a lot of really strong women. The portrayal of women in Star Trek was pretty uneven. Um, Sometimes it was really sexist. Sometimes, though, it was super progressive, right? And this is an episode we had, you know, you had to pow to prang, who are these strong, take no crap kind of women. They knew exactly what they wanted. They're running things. And they reminded me of a couple other strong characters throughout the course of the show, but these two were really, really compelling. I thought they're they're pretty neat. That's a mock time. I really loved it, and but just that that fight between uh, Spock and Kirk, which is so iconic. It's so iconic. Yeah, there are even action figures of Kirk with his shirt cut open with a scar across. Like you no, know, it's from the Lurpak. cut. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't
2: don't don't sleep <laughs> on and, and and Chris just mentioned it. The the music from this episode, the desire to display the exotica of, of Vulcan, right? Like. Yeah, the slap and bass that they enter for this, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean that that is so cool and so atmospheric um, for what they do. Like, let's not sleep on the fact, by the way, that like Spock essentially was deployed and DePring stepped out on him, right? Like this yeah. Vulcan woman like found a boyfriend while Spock was off in the military, which yeah. is really lame.
3: The fact that that's what happened. In my culture, this is considered a dick move. Well, right, exactly. Yeah, Thank but, you very
2: much. But you know what, though, it's, it might be logical, but it's still a dick move,
0: hey, right? I, I don't. You know what? I can't put a whole lot of blame onto Prang only because we've seen. Uh, a couple of different times, I got the sense just and just watching purely within the context of the original series, I always got the sense that Spock was unusual for having gone to Starfleet. Like, like right. the 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 expectation yes. was that he was actually beholden to Vulcan. He should have stayed in Vulcan and given his, he was his talents to work at the Science
2: Academy, right? And maybe. given his talents
0: there, and so it's he insane. took off. So not only did he leave her alone. But he went someplace he shouldn't have gone in the first place. It's a double abdication of the relationship, you know? It is. In the
3: in the greater context of Star Trek, that is absolutely true. But in the context of this episode at its time, it's not because you just you don't have as much information about Spock's past or about Vulcan. This is nineteen
2: sixty eight. Yeah. And guys are going off to Vietnam. Exactly. Fair enough. And their girlfriends, right, are, sleeping enough, and their girlfriends yeah. are sleeping with the guy next door. Yeah. While okay. their boyfriend, while their, while their boyfriend. The is guy sleeping, who went to
3: college.
2: Right. The guy, the, the, their boyfriend is writing letters home from Nang while they're sleeping with Jimmy who went to, you know, state U. Yeah. So, All star football Stan, player. Stan, by the way, is the biggest doof standing there like, I demand to the right of the woman, a Topao essentially goes like, dude, shut up. And he's like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. St Stan St- 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 is exhibit A, that, that there are in fact like beefheaded, Vulcans, stupid, yeah, right? stupid Vulcans. Like exactly. they're not there's, all Spock. Like, <laughs> even Vulcan has its handsome ditch diggers.
2: <laughs> but I love the I love the Pants? fact that that no, not in the slightest. I love that Tapao, by the way, a cool name of a band later oh, that yeah. gets appropriated, right? She does the whole archaic language of the, and yeah, right. but it gets it entirely Gips.
3: wrong. Oh
2: God, like, who cares? Like <laughs> that's, I, I get you. I do. Jeez. I understand. <laughs> but but the fact that they try it all, well, that's just uh, you know, Chris. Yeah. That's just the universal translator does its best.
0: And <laughs> so, there's an, there's know, an apology for all of it.
2: Right. Well, Kirk and Spock don't speak Vulcan. I have to assume that's all going through the universal translator, which is trying to take Vulcan, or
0: Kirk and
3: like
2: archaic. <laughs>
3: I'm pretty sure Spock yeah. does. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh,
2: Kirk, Kirk and McCoy. Kirk and McCoy. And they're they're trying to take like archaic Vulcan yeah. through the universal translator to archaic English. It's gonna have some slip ups right I mean, that's okay
0: cool.
3: sure yeah. well as a star trek fan i mean you know I, I know you have to tell yourself certain things that's right we got to tell a story <laughs> that gets us in it. but
2: Sorry. you've also got this is the first episode two for me that establishes with no dodging that kirk mccoy spock these are friends these aren't yeah. just crewmates mm-hmm. spock goes down this is going to be his wedding and he says i have the right to have my friends with me and he asks and he's in the turbo lift, and he says you know, Captain, yeah. I, I'd like you. To... And then he turns to Spock and says, "I'd like you as well." I, I'm sorry, he turns to McCoy and says, "I'd like you as well." Yeah. And McCoy's like, "Whoa, okay." Wow. And they, these yeah. guys are going to be his groomsmen, essentially, yeah. yeah, at his wedding. And that's like that—that that was a big deal. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, all the comments, you know, and the back and forth between McCoy and Spock, you know, over the all those episodes. I mean. How, mm-hmm. how can you see your way through to having McCoy as a groomsman when he's called, you know, like a green blooded, you know, unfeeling. <laughs>
2: These monster. guys are brothers yeah. you know, and they, yeah, fight, yeah. Like brothers. they <laughs> fight like brothers. They fight like brothers. <laughs> they do. They do. Look, I've said, I've said many times and, and, and I'll say it again, that the reason Star Trek works in the original series is because they develop this triad of Kirk as the, this sort of the driving force that you if you will. And then you've got McCoy as the ego and Spock as the superego. And together the three of them form yeah. this, this this overarching psyche. Yeah. And that it doesn't work without them all together. Mm-hmm. It becomes such a great narrative
0: conceit. One of the moments in this episode that worked for me is you know, also underscoring just like the, the depth of their friendship was when Spock and Tapau are talking and she's like, Basically, like, look, the you know, you brought Outworlders to this, really? And he's like, no, 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 these are my friends, and he vouches for it on his life. He goes as deep as a Vulcan can go to go, no, 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 these are these people are okay, you know, you know, and and I'm permitted this. Yeah, I'm permitted this. He vouches right. Yeah, I'm permitted this, and that's that has gravity to it. I love it. And the way it's delivered was so cool. It's like, and I kept thinking about you, Joe, as you're saying this, and because we're talking before about how the triad, Bones, Spot, Kirk, Trinity, really is so important to the show, and. Yeah, you really do see it here. And this is where Spock really kind of puts forth some energy to kind of show what it, what the, all this means to him. At a time when a lot of the episode is really exploring a deep, a deep look at his Vulcan side and also looking at the cost of what it means for him to live with his Vulcan side and the human side that don't exactly reconcile very, very well all the time. And I thought that was a, a really cool thing.
3: You know, i I've got to tell you that I thought that T'Pring's motivation was... To put Spock in a position where, if he kills to have her, he is he can't be in Starfleet anymore. He would have to stay with her. I actually watched the episode, you know, thinking that must be the case. She was just like, "I want this chump." <laughs> 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 I was appalled. I got to tell you, appalled. Well, I, well, I got the feeling that Pring <laughs> was looking at it from
0: the point of view of, okay, however this ends it ends with her getting stoned, because... Uh, it, well, it, she it, says it, that. It, At least she didn't get it. Spock's property.
2: <laughs> she doesn't get his sell-out.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. If Spock had killed Kirk, I think she was banking on the fact that Spock was either too beholden to Starfleet to not accept punishment for it, or to beholden to his human side, to, right. not, to not accept with the Vulcan stoicism the necessity of having done this, right? She, figured, she, she you know, says it, as it, much. It, yeah, she says yes. as much, right? She's if very Kirk, clear. If Kirk kills Spock, would that just make things simple, simple for, for her? <laughs> you know, um, Either way, she gets what she wants, which is why Spock respects her her machinations so much from a Vulcan side. And I thought it was interesting. Very logical. His human side should be boiling about this, right? But we don't see an inkling of it. He goes 100% Vulcan off of all this. And I thought that was an interesting moment.
2: Well, you have the moment, too, where, where he goes into his trance. He goes into the blood fever, and Kirk tries to talk to him, and Powell says he won't respond, he won't
0: speak. Yeah.
2: And then, like, he actually comes up and speaks to, to Powell and says, this is <laughs> yeah. how any of this is supposed to go. And she right. actually is surprised. Yeah. And she looks at him and goes, these speaks? Yeah. It's supposed to be thou-, thou speaks, I get it, right? But, like, yeah. she says, these speaks. She's sort of surprised that he comes out of it mm-hmm. enough to try to protect his friend. And I think at that point, Topao is moved by the strength of his friendship for, for Kirk.
0: Yeah. I thought T'Pau was a great character. We, I mean, we don't see her for a whole heck of a lot of the episode, but she made a massive impact. And I thought she was really, huge. really cool. Huge impact, just huge presence. I love how they brought her in. She delivered her lines so well. She was really, really well written. Like, I saw her and it was like, man, this is just a great, great character. And she did so much to deepen the whole scene of, of Vulcan in general for me, because once you start seeing other Vulcans besides Spock, she was an important second kind of introduction to the culture, and what an introduction she made! I thought she was just terrific.
3: It gets better at the end, you know, when you're when you think about it, because I think it's clear that she knew that her lied. You know,
0: and she had to have, because I think afterwards, like it's pretty clear, like like well, okay, she sends that message to excuse yeah. him yeah exactly yeah, she knew kidding.
3: exactly what was going on
0: yeah she calls into starfleet to give him the pass it's all good it's all good it's all good i thought yeah that was really cool i right. was like i caught that i'm like oh she knew he he, he fibbed and she's like it's okay I gave it a pass and Vol- yeah, four like,
2: words to knows what's up
0: yeah right she, she's <laughs> now she's a got she's a, a bad B you know she's got it going on she was she was pretty awesome she was pretty awesome so well, look, Chris, I think this is a good time to turn things over to, to your moment of truth, because here we go from the Vulcans to our other pointy ear folks in the show, the Romulans. So talk to us about your episode here and where your moment of truth comes out of it. Because this, uh, this is an episode, I will be honest, I had not seen this one. This is one of those weird episodes of Star Trek because, again, I watched on syndication. The episodes were all jumbled up. I just never saw this episode. It just fell through the net. And so I watched it for the first time a couple of days ago and was riveted
3: (laughs) by it. I was like, this is, wow, what an episode. So Chris, take it away. My favorite episode of Star Trek comes from season one. It's a balance of terror. In this episode, uh, the Enterprise receives a distress signal from near the Romulan neutral zone. There are a picket of of observation stations there to ensure that the neutral zone isn't crossed. And, And this is a zone that was established between by treaty between the uh, Federation and the Romulans after a, an abortive conflict that, it turns out, James Kirk had a small part in. The uh, Enterprise is, is rushing toward the the neutral zone at maximum warp, and these stations are being picked off one by one. They finally get close enough to communicate with one that's already been hit by some sort of super powerful weapon from a ship they never saw, and you get a, a kind of horrifying watch those folks last minute scenes you get this a lot in star trek but i think this is the first time we we saw it kirk you know infers the presence of an enemy presumably a romulan but the ship is cloaked they've got a cloaking device and uh some sort of plasma weapon that's that's crazy powerful kirk realizes that he can't just let these Romulans escape because it's a sign of weakness that would inevitably lead to war with the Romulans. He also can't violate the neutral zone because that would lead to a war with Romulans. He has to try to catch them on this side of the the neutral zone. The Enterprise detects this ship by uh, the, you know, Star Trek MacGuffin means some sort of plasma leak or whatever. And They sort of abortively track it like a submarine while it's cloaked. And and the entire drama plays out as a submarine drama. It's it's like watching a 40-minute-long dust boat. It's riveting. The perspective switches back and forth between the Enterprise and the Romulan ship. And on both ships, you see cultural pressures at play. Uh, On the Romulan ship, the same guy that played Stan plays this particularly bloodthirsty officer sub-officers to the Romulan captain who is constantly insisting on killing everybody and everything for the glory of the emperor whereas on the Enterprise the pre-Chekhov helmsman of the day is a a survivor of that Romulan conflict who holds a grudge and uh, there's a pretty solid commentary in this episode on bigotry which is something that you know Can count on Star Trek 4. It it, well, it's explicit, but it's not it's not really hammered home. The issue is that the Romulans look just like Vulcans, and and so Spock uh, is suspected of treachery, and and things happen that you know suggest maybe he is. Of course, we all know Spock's not a bad guy, we've already seen the menagerie (laughs) And, and this game of cat and mouse proceeds, the the Romulan ship slips into the neutral zone, but the the Enterprise manages to stay on on side and continue to attack it with phasers that act like depth charges. It's all completely taken out of sci-fi terms and placed in something that's familiar to a 1960s audience, I think. And it works so well, it's so tense. Mark Leonard plays the captain of the Romulan vessel. Uh, Mark Leonard, of course, is famous. He was the first person to ever play a Romulan, a Vulcan, and a Klingon. Of course, most famous for his decades-long turn as Sarek, Spock's father. Yeah. Who wasn't um, at his wedding? Apparently, <laughs> wasn't at his wedding. Yeah. yeah, but that, I was bothering me today. <laughs> yeah. what, what? I, I had never thought about that before. They were estranged. They were. They were. I can. Strange. I can
0: understand
2: Sarek <laughs> not being there, but where the hell is Amanda? I know, <laughs> right? right? Anyway,
3: this episode it's tense. It's just got so much to hold yeah. you. Joe and I are both fans of the Aubrey Maturin novels, and mm-hmm. rewatching a lot of Star Trek has really made me think that kirk and spock may have been the model maybe kirk and a mixture of spock and bones yeah yeah it's remarkable the the parallels i see there i don't want to get too far into that but yeah it it feels it makes it feel to me so real and and familiar and affecting you know the the uh, Mark Leonard's performance in this episode's great because he's not hes not a bloodthirsty man. He, he's, he's doing his duty as he sees it, and that does not necessarily involve killing people that he's not required to kill. Yeah. His underling kind of pushes the issue, and that's what ends up getting them destroyed by the so, Enterprise. So, Chris, what would you
0: say is your moment of truth in
3: this episode? My moment of truth is immediate denouement of, of the Enterprise finally disabling... This Romulan vessel. Kirk wants to go and help them. Before the Romulan captain inevitably destroys his own ship, scuttles his ship, uh, they share a moment where the Romulan says, uh, we are of a kind, you and I. In, in another reality, in another reality we,
2: we could I could have friend. called you friend.
3: That, that, that is a moment that I recognize from other media. And like I've got goosebumps right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, that's Christy um,
2: Pallier from Aubrey Matters. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's, absolutely. It's the same deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Roddenberry expressly has said that Kirk is based on Horatio Hornblower, which you can draw a line from Hornblower through Kirk to Aubrey, Jack yeah, Aubrey, Kirk. right? I mean, yeah. and then, I mean, what's interesting, you talk about it as a, as a, as a submarine drama. Um, the writers of this episode have, are on record as saying they drew explicitly from the script of a 1957 movie called The Enemy Below, which was Kirk. a submarine movie. So it was, it was designed to yeah. be, and, and you know, they used to do these things in, the, in, um, in Star Trek where when they had to beam down to a planet, it immediately got a lot more expensive because you had to have these sets and, and everything else. And when they were going to do it just on board ship, they called it a bottle show. Like, we're going to do it in the bottle and it's cheaper. This was one of the cheapest episodes they made in, sure. in, because it was all done on sound stages.
3: The, the no Romulan way. ship set was right? laughable. Oh, God. Right. It's, ter- <laughs>
2: it's, it's, it's a joke. I love the helmets, like the whole bit, yeah. but like... But to your point, I mean the the interplay between you've got Kirk talking to Spock and McCoy as his confidants, and then you know Leonard as the um, as the Romulan commander talking to his friend, this weird curly-haired older Romulan guy, yeah. which is unlike any other Romulan we'll see for the rest of the you know the, the whole franchise. But there's a humanization yeah. to the Romulans. This is the first time we see the Romulans.
3: The first time the characters see the romulans. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah nat- any of season. us.
0: But I think the, the cool thing about that that second is that we see this like parallel. Of what we see on the enterprise bridge, which is like we have this commander and he's got this long time second, and they have this long shared history. And he's like, I just don't understand you. And you can tell like they have this. They, they aren't entirely eye to eye, but they have so much shared experience that like when there comes a point when the commander has to send out debris in the hopes of fooling the enterprise into thinking that they've destroyed the ship, he sends out. You know, know, the body of his slain XO who dies in the battle. Sorry, my old friend. Sorry, my old friend. how do do he go? And it's like, but that, these lines land with some uncommon weight. And like talking about at the end, it's like, you know, could have called you friend. Yeah, you've seen that scene in plenty of other TV shows and movies and all that, but rarely done so well
3: and so effectively and so convincingly. And I I just, I just, I just adored that. There is something about that 60s super earnest style of acting. Mm, yeah, that that you know there, there, there's stage all, acting I, there, on screen yeah oh. I, I always feel like there's a, a layer of glass you know between me and a performance of that era but sometimes it really does work yeah, yeah it really does tom i know i know you almost picked this as your moment of truth as
0: well i know you you really yeah, love this yeah. episode i'd love to get your take on this
1: well because i i actually picked the like the exact same moment of truth because i, I <laughs> love it you know there's that begrudging like sort of respect between the Romulan commander and Kirk, but Kirk earns it, man. He earns every, like, this is where you start to see, you really start to see Kirk, the strategist, come out. And, like, he's in an impossible situation. It's another, like, you know, Kobayashi Maru type of thing where, like, he's got to keep them on this side of the neutral zone because if he goes in there, it's war. If he doesn't get their respect before they cross over, yeah. You're also going to war. So like, yeah. how do you even do that? You know, and the, the thing that he sets up in order to do it, there's a lot of cat and mouse going on, you know, in the end when there is that like respect and you can see like, it's going to be okay. Cause now they respect us.
0: Yeah. I yeah. love
1: that moment. I absolutely yeah. love that moment. <laughs> and like, this is the first time you've actually seen a Romulan right on top of that because you know like they go to these lengths in the beginning of the episode to explain the earlier conflict like you know it was fought on these ships you know where we couldn't see one another and blah yeah. blah blah and, yeah. and you know nobody's ever really seen a romulan so like you have all the gravity of all those things coming down on that one scene and i love it I absolutely love it <laughs> it's
0: it's it really it's so good i mean for me star trek was the show where i had seen so many bits and pieces of it i kind of had this self-made mythology of what the original series is all about without really knowing the episodes too well. So when I got to watch them again recently, it was a lot of fun because I felt like I was kind of watching them for the first time again. I remembered a lot of the acting in the show being not so great. But in this episode, the acting is like, it's spot on. It's like, it's wound just to the right intensity. And everybody's like all, they're all, you know, fired up, but nobody's going over the edge. And it's just, it was so well done. It was so pulled, it was so pulled together. I just, it's I just yeah, it, it's That's it, it's, the word. It was intense, yeah. and, and you can just feel it. It was so good.
2: And you know, throughout the whole mythology of Star Trek, we keep hearing about Kirk as the preternaturally gifted starship commander and the highest and best use. And even when we later we get into the movies, and they say, "Oh, yeah. forget being an admiral. You need to be on board. You need to be on on the bridge of a, of a starship." Here is they're not telling us; they're showing
0: us. Yeah, this
2: whole yeah. episode is showing us Kirk as the supreme tactician.
0: You know what this what this episode did for me was and I know I'm going to break my own rule of not talking about things outside the original series but I but but this is something that just crossed my mind is that in the movie Star Trek 6 Undiscovered Country is a point where Kirk and McCoy are captured and they kind of brought before this like Klingon high tribunal and there's a really great scene where they're they're being risen up to meet their fate. You hear all this this crowd of Klingons going "Kirk Kirk Kirk" Kirk, it's really it's an awesome scene like whoa you know and bones is like oh man and kirk's like yeah i kind of have this coming you know but like <laughs> right it's like i make enemies wherever i the go fans <laughs> yeah, the fans. but like in this episode you see how he gets that way like anybody who he has crossed sabers with has certainly walked away remembering who it is that they cross sabers with kirk is no pushover he's no fool and and like the brilliance here is so understated because his whole thing is i can't start a war even though the the romulans technically have already done so unprovoked right. they cro- they not only crossed the neutral zone they went all the way across the neutral zone Then blew up deep space one through eight and yeah. then yeah and then blasted a whole bunch of <laughs> of, of, of stations like this is a clear declaration and and kirk has his right to go ham on these guys right and and yet he doesn't he he chooses this weird third option that nobody else can see and it's like that's it's such a, such a brilliant setup like it you really appreciate especially when you think of kirk again there's a mythology kirk like the hothead, and, and like you know what he has that aspect but he's very in control he's very 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 you know on top of things and it was really cool seeing this side of kirk in full display i, I love is the it? ship's captain yeah.
2: there is a there is a sequence where he says for the for the record he says if we all need to go down to preserve peace that's what's going to happen yes and I'm sorry, but like, and I know like to your point, we don't talk about other aspects of anything, but like I don't see the JJ Abrams, Chris Pine Kirk saying that into the ship's log like that. This is a Starfleet yeah. Kirk. This is a, a yeah. Kirk who who respects chain of command, who is steeped in the mission of Starfleet and the Federation.
3: Go ahead, Chris. What you got? I don't know. He does not respect the chain of command. Over and oh over.
0: well, I mean, hold on.
3: We, we just talked about uh, a mock time. Yeah, I mean, but 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 he. Well, here's the deal. Like that was a direct he, order.
2: Yes, but look, I mean, look, I've taught leadership. I've taught leadership many times, and, and and there are three. You know, to me, there's three aspects of leadership, and one of them is take care of your people. He prioritizes. He's going to take care of, you know, his uh, his XO, but all that all that being said we can look back 60 years later and we can lampoon certain acting choices and we can lampoon certain acting styles this was so much better than any other television that was available in oh, yeah. 1967 68 oh, yeah. light years <laughs> yeah. ahead of anything that was ha, on
3: ha, <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'll put this up against any episode of Adam Twelve, <laughs>
2: you know? well, or any episode of Gunsmoke, <laughs> yeah, any episode right. exactly. of you know the man this from Uncle. Not even the ben same This was this was. I mean, yeah. from a, a technical production standpoint, from a writing standpoint, yeah. they used they they brought in the Ted Sturgeons and the Harlan Ellison's and these these, yeah. these sci-fi writers with chops to come in and and yeah. write episodes. This this was something that had never been seen
3: yeah. before. Yeah, and Lucille friggin Ball.
0: Oh, man.
2: (laughs) She had no idea what this was.
0: Yeah, but she's a national treasure for so many other reasons. On top of the fact that she was so hooked up with this. Like, God bless her. She saved Star Trek because she thought it was a Western. Yeah, you know what? That's (laughs) by any means necessary. By (laughs) any means necessary. (laughs) You know? know? A lot of gift
2: horses in the mouth there, do you, Joe? (laughs) Hey, listen. (laughs) Before I was born, baby, I'm glad it happened.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, well, like, Joe, I think, now is the time to turn this over to you because uh your moment of truth is about an episode which is widely regarded to be if not the best episode of star trek ever certainly amongst the top two or three i in all the various lists i looked at before we started recording this like what are the top episodes of all time this one is always at the top or just right beneath it. It, it is universally acclaimed joe take us through this episode take us through why you love it Take us through your moment of truth and what this episode says to you about Star Trek.
2: This is hard for me to discuss. I mean, any of this, to be honest. I was weaned on these episodes in the mid 80s, watching syndicated reruns with my brother and my dad weeknights and Saturday afternoons. We, we literally we would check the TV guide to see what episode was airing that night and get all excited if it was a classic one, like some of the ones we've discussed and, and many mirror, others. Mirror, yeah. Uh, yeah, Mirror, Mirror, Trouble, with Tribbles, I mean, any of them, a piece of the action or Patterns of Force or any of them. Um, this was before streaming, kids. This was even before VCRs. <laughs> you know, yeah. when I when I was twelve, you I knew all know. these. I know I knew all the. Uh, right? For your and favorite show, yeah. Star, Star Trek. I'm shaking was my fist at a cloud right now. <laughs> old man, exactly. right?
0: Exactly. And
2: uh, Star Trek was my introduction to a world that didn't exist yet, and to this concept of science fiction and and city. City on the Edge of Forever is pro football played at the highest level. For those who forget, this is the episode that involves the Enterprise encountering these bands of energy in space, these time fluctuations. And then there's this medical emergency on the bridge and Dr. McCoy tries to administer cortisone uh, to, to Sulu. And he accidentally injects himself with a full hypo of it and it leads to a psychotic episodes for him and he beams down to the planet in his madness. And then the bridge crew goes down and finds the guardian of forever. McCoy leaps in, you know, the guardian of forever is this, this time portal And he does something to change the past that leaves the crew stranded. The enterprise is gone. Everything they've known is gone. And so Kirk and Spock follow through the Guardian into the past to try to fix whatever McCoy broke. And in the 1930s of the United States, they encounter the slum angel, Edith Keeler, beguilingly portrayed by Joan Collins. And eventually Kirk and Spock learn they have to allow Edith to die so that history can proceed along its familiar path. And the, the trouble is that Kirk has fallen in love with Edith. At the end of the day, he has to allow her to die to restore the future. This episode is my moment of truth for a variety of reasons. One, it puts the triad of Kirk, McCoy, and Spock front and center, and I've talked about them as the head, heart, and gut of the human experience. Uh, and their interplay defining and encapsulating who we are. And never better than in this episode. I, I contend that Star Trek in its original incarnation and at its best, captures our humanity better than any other science fiction ever depicted on screen. And in this episode, we see it on display. In Kirk literally clings to Spock mm-hmm. as Edith is hit by the car. And meanwhile, McCoy stands by bewildered and asks, do you know what you just did? And Spock replies, he knows, doctor. He knows Kirk. In this moment, Kirk chooses the maintenance of the timeline over the demands of his own heart He chooses duty over desire. And I defy, anyone to ever dismiss James Tiberius Kirk as this interstellar adventurer Lothario in high boots. Jim Kirk knows sacrifice and leadership better than anyone. And in this episode, he displays it at, at the highest level. And City to me is the best science fiction ever filmed for episodic TV and might well be some of the best TV ever filmed. There's not a ray gun or a starship in sight. So yeah. fellas, let, let's get the hell out of here.
0: There are more than a few people who would strongly argue that this episode is certainly one of the best episodes of TV ever filmed, regardless of genre. Yeah, you, know, you know this. This is this one is routinely in the top of just the top. You know, I forget best science fiction. This is like this is just considered like one of the best examples of the medium. You know what you can do in an hour in terms of the storytelling. And there's there's so much to it. There's so much humanity on display. They, they tell this really interesting story. And yeah, it's like they quickly ditch the science fiction for this very simple, you know, Kirk and Spock bummed around Depression-era America and, you know, hanging out in the soup kitchen and trying to build a radio out of things. And there's this, there's odd humor trying to explain Spock's appearance. There's real humanity watching Edith speak to people and and do what she does. There's a neat examination of the butterfly effect when they realize why she has to die. I guess the idea is that if she doesn't die, she will become such, such an influence on FDR that she will delay America's Entry into World War II down the road, which will then result in Germany, Nazi Germany's victory, and that the whole world will suffer under the Nazi boot heel if Edith Keeler does not die. So, like the stakes are impossibly high, and then it becomes obvious that this has to happen. What I love about this one is that we see Kirk, he he is perpetually smitten. It does not take a lot to turn Kirk's head, right? But <laughs> in this one, you really kind of believe it. He's like, I think I'm in love with her. And you're like, oh, uh oh. Jim got stars in his eyes, what happened? You know, he got hit, you know, and, and, and you kind of buy it. And, you know, what made me buy it was that you see him and Edith walking and, they're walking hand in hand, like he he hold he, does, hands. he does, yeah they hold hands. It's so sweet, you know. Like he's willing. To, he never does the lip crush. No, and he's like he's so willing to he's so willing to do it on, on her terms. Like there's a sweetness there, and there's like it was the kind of thing like if the plot had turned out like one of us has to stay behind forever, Jim would have been like, "That's me." Like like I'm sorry, you guys. I'll, I'll, if he's I'll, gonna do the Captain
2: America and go yeah, back, yeah, the Captain America exactly. Yeah, it's, exactly, it's like that, yeah.
0: That, this is this is me, you know. The other thing I thought was kind of cool that you know near the end. So we see the scene where they find Bones, like, oh, Bones, there you are. And they go to reunite. And Edith is like, oh, and she comes towards him. That's when she walks into the path of this truck, right? And Bones is like, oh, wait a minute. And Kirk doesn't just watch it happen. Kirk actually stops McCoy from saving her. And that's why McCoy's like, do you know what you've done? It's like, Kirk has to actually take action to ensure she dies. It's not just enough to watch it happen. He has to make it happen. And that really hit hard for me because – when I started my rewatch, I guess um one of the first episodes I watched was the Man Trap. and I remember laughing at it because just like even by Star Trek standards, man, that body Salt count is sucker. hot. Well, just yeah. like a dozen people die. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like there's a lot of bodies in that episode. right? Like Kirk's <laughs> gonna have it, hell, a hell of a paperwork. To
1: get the two people. That's a
0: lot of <laughs> a lot of body. paperwork, yeah, right? It's a lot, a lot of paperwork. paperwork. A lot of dead yeah. bodies around, and 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 so you kind of like laugh like how cavalier like the body count is in this. This is one person, one very very important person dying. It's the different writing episode by episode but here this the weight the emotional weight of losing edith is a million times more than the combined weight of all the people you lost in, say the man trap right and and that's what the that's the kind of episode it is it just has that feel to it it's just it's just fantastic
2: this has a heft to it right off the bat and i, yeah. and I think one of the interesting things about shatner as a performer is and we see this in the space scene when ricardo Montalban is there that oh, when he is so when he is given talent to work with and to, and to uh, emote opposite he rises to that occasion when yeah. he has to act when he has to act opposite like a hairy costume or a babe in a tinfoil <laughs> bikini Vic, Vic like, Tay back goes, in and a piece of the yeah, action. <laughs> he goes down well first of all piece of the action has some awesomeness to it but I like, love that I will, love that episode he will he will <laughs> descend he will play to the level that yeah and that if you give him goofiness he'll be goofy if yeah. you give him cheese he'll until the cheese but if you give him iron if you give him legit talent yeah the ricardo montalbans the, the the joan collins he will give you a performance for the ages
0: mm-hmm.
2: he has that ability <laughs> in him and honestly like when i watch this remember when they filmed this the depression was more recent for them than this episode is to us
0: right
3: yeah
2: and their depiction of the gritty streets of the 1930s is very tangible
3: not very very gritty, real
2: though. well there's trash in the streets and there's bums and there's drunks and there's i mean compared to a lot of what we see. I mean, yeah, I rewatched to, I this compared today. Compared to Star Trek,
3: yeah. I, I, yeah. I, wa- <laughs> I, re- I
2: rewatched this today, and you're talking about something 60 years old that holds up today as a, yeah. as a piece of allegory and as a piece of storytelling. Yeah. That's, good that's stuff. pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. Tom, your thoughts?
2: You know, I,
1: it's definitely a contrast to the, uh, the green girl from the space asylum, huh? Like. <laughs> true. Vita. Yeah, clearly i mean this is Where's the episode the you know, like you got it right man like kirk sees stars and like everybody's just so used to him being that you know that like space playboy you know and and yeah. you see the opposite of it here which is is transfixing i i loved it you know I, this is a great episode like i you know yeah i would put this in one of the top episodes of you know just episodic television absolutely sure. yeah so I yeah. definitely agree with that, with yeah. that assessment. Like, you know, put it on the Voyager probe, you know, on the little record as it goes out there. Cause you know, I, I think it's <laughs> going to be that
2: kind of
0: preservation. Yeah, right. V'ger. V'ger. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we gotta look at this from a standpoint of 1960, 68. And and the fact that they made this then, when they were busy making, look at other stuff from 1968 and how absolutely banal it is. <laughs> Yeah. some of the, the the episodic television that was getting made yeah. was so was so uh, ephemeral. And this thing lands like a like an iron fist with what the story they're trying to tell and the characterizations that are part of it are are so real and so powerful. the The climax still you know mists me up when I see it because. The interplay between Kirk and McCoy and Spock is, is so absolutely real. And those performers are those characters in that moment. It's, it's really pretty impressive.
0: I think it's an interesting comparison, too. Like, we, we started off, you know, we're, we're talking about in The Naked Time, how at the end of that episode, they accidentally, you know, create time travel, right? And like, oh, yeah, it's just this detail to sort of throw off. Like, oh, whatever, it's time travel. And, and periodically, you know, Star Trek does this whole we're going to travel back in time or we're going to go back to some part of earth's history either by way of allegory or literally and they they do that a fair number of times but for me this is the one time where it mattered this is where it really it really hit they really kind of seemed to go into it not just as time travel as a simple device but time travel as as a as a reason for being like there was more to it than just a matter of oh you know what This will give us an excuse to use one of the old Mayberry sets, like we can actually, you know, no, no, there's, there's more, there's more to it than that. This, this, this wasn't just about him being on another planet with somebody. This is about, you know, you know, the stakes were so high, he had a, his hand was forced, and, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Like speaking
1: of time travel, you know, like so, naked time was supposed to be a two-part episode. Which is why that bit about time travel at the end of it was seemed sort of like thrown in. Yeah. Like I like to think about, well, like, what if that never happened and they didn't throw that in at the end? And you know, like, would it have been so easy for them to go back to time travel as a device yeah. later? I yeah. feel like time travel ruins everything when the series, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. I, oh. I just I would love it if they would just stay away from that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But but they, but they've done it so many times. Yeah, uh, yeah. and and, and, yeah, and the... it's not it's not Star
3: Trek without it. In that
0: true, true. At <laughs> this point, well, Joe, you've got a pretty deep knowledge of like the behind the scenes stuff. I know that obviously. So Harlan Ellison is credited with writing this particular episode. But my understanding is that there's more to it than just that. This is actually rewritten a couple times. I think I, th- I think I think DC Fontana got brought in at one point to do some writing. Yeah, on DC Fontana.
2: Well, Harlan Ellison wrote it, and Harlan Ellison's original script was something that could never have been produced in its in its scope and its cost. And and he also he had a whole bit around this black market drug culture on the enterprise that Roddenberry hated because he didn't want any part of that in his Starfleet, in his future. <laughs> and and so they they excised a lot of Ellison's script and there was a lot more to it and they had to streamline it for for episodic television. And so Roddenberry and, and Fontana rewrote it really pretty significantly to the point where Ellison almost said like, no, I don't want to stop my script anymore. Don't put my name on it. Of course, yeah. once it started to win, you know, awards, he's like, okay, fine, leave my name on it because Ellison's <laughs> one, of the, one of the huge dicks in yeah, that, that's um, an Ellison science move. fiction, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, Good. <laughs> he was brilliant. There's no question about that. That led to decades of argument between him and Roddenberry around who was responsible for City.
0: Yeah
2: it really ended up being, you know, he wrote this this really masterful script that had to be adapted mm-hmm. to Star Trek, especially Star Trek of the late 60s or what was possible in network television. And without that sort of sequential non-collaboration, it never would have happened.
0: If I can just for a minute call out DC Fontana, what an unsung hero, however much praise she has gotten, it's not enough because she has done so much work writing and editing in the original series of Star Trek. And like so many female writers of the time, especially in science fiction, had to go by her first initials, right? I mean, which which we see even nowadays, there are writers still doing it, right? I thought it was interesting. This is another episode with a really great, really compelling, really strong female character, right? Yeah. Which which kind of, it's the, the show's progressive values kind of, you know, walk the walk here, as far as writing this really well-rounded character. But I gotta say, it was more proof of the pudding as well that it was regularly hiring a female writer to do this work. You know, at a time well, when Dorothy
2: it, Fontana wasn't the only one. I mean, now look, Dorothy no, no, Fontana no. Was, was Roddenberry's secretary. She was reading the scripts that came in and Roddenberry tasked her to kind of do some polish. And eventually she said, can I give you some spec scripts? And, and, and she became a writer on the show. Dorothy Fontana probably had a hand in two thirds of the scripts that ever made it to screen. The other one, and if you're like, you know, Roddenberry gets all t- great bird of the galaxy and all this stuff, right? But the two people after Roddenberry that had the biggest impact on Star Trek, as we know it, were Dorothy Fontana and Gene Kuhn were the two. Kuhn was the one who introduced a lot of the aspects of humor. Um, He had a way of writing sort of comedy that fit in. And then Fontana had a way with dialogue that, because Roddenberry's dialogue was like Lucas's dialogue. It was like, what the heck is (laughs) happening? And so so Fontana had a way to polish dialogue and then Kuhn had a way to bring in the comedy And, and together they they were able to put stuff on that that really worked, yeah. but you're correct that it was unusual to have women now. Now Fontana wasn't the only one; there were some others. And and I'm not such a nerd that I can bring you chapter and verse yeah. of all the directors and writers that were part of it. I, I, I
0: will say this: so as as I was watching, I was kind of you know noticing certain names coming up, and I, I was like, "DC and Fontana is like doing some really cool stuff here." She created some of my favorite female characters of this whole series. Honestly, like she did, uh, and this is an episode that not. A huge fan amongst a lot of people but one i quite like which is um friday's child where mm-hmm. you know you share with that but she also wrote the character you know Eileen, who was like who's was like you know basically the queen a lot of Troyes, this cool strong character right she wrote up the romulan character from the enterprise incident right who's this great nuanced character and like you know these are some terrific and we talked about how nobody was doing this stuff on tv they certainly weren't doing it for female characters now the show does does some some pretty cringy stuff with female characters in other episodes of course and, and that does, that just sort of speaks to the just making it up as you go along and hit or miss nature of the of the show itself because every every episode was kind of a microcosm you know and this they sort of succeeded or or failed on their own merits but when the episodes brought in great female characters, boy, you really noticed it. And it was really standout stuff. And it's just, it's just the kind of stuff that writers today can actually learn a thing or two by looking at when it works so well. And I just really, I had to salute the show for what I was seeing there. Uh, I wish I'd seen more of it, but the stuff I saw was really quite quite cool and really, really compelling.
2: And I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't take 30 seconds to talk just briefly about the fact that this show in the late 1960s took chances around the the presentation of non White male characters in a way that we weren't seeing—we uh, that, that America oh, wasn't seeing on TV at the Absolutely. time. you're talking about—you know—first of all, forget—you know—having uh, Sulu and having—you know—Chekov. Uh, if they put a Russian <laughs> yeah. at the helm, they were, the, the Enterprise was driven by a Russian guy at the ha- at the height of the Cold War. Okay, yeah. um, and you the know weapons. this this <laughs> idea. Well, that's right. Sulu was driving it, and 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 you know, uh, Chekhov was the, was the was the weapons guy, but like. You know, Uhura, um, a, a black woman, an African black woman. Yeah. Now, now, they didn't give her enough to do, but she actually, at, after the first season, she was going to walk away and she actually got a phone call from Martin Luther King Jr. who said, don't you dare walk away. <laughs>
0: yeah, don't you do right? this. Like
2: like a black America needs to see you on, they need to yeah. see the, a, a black person on yeah. the bridge. Know that we make it, when when everybody makes it, we're there, we're in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the fact that, that you know, when we look at what America is going through right now and we talk about the tumult and we talk about how dangerous it all feels, probably 1968 is the closest modern uh, amalgam that, you know, closest modern analogy you're going to have.
0: It was not a quiet time.
2: Dangerous it feels right now. And yet here comes Roddenberry with the show about, no, 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 it's going to be all right. We're going to make it. And you know what? We're going to make it together. We're going to make it. It's not just going to be, white guys that make it we're going to make it and there's going to be people from all around the world from all different cultures from all different genders we're going to be there and not only that there's going to be a guy that looks like the devil as the second in command and And you will love him (laughs) paramount and nbc pushed back and they said no we can't have this satanic looking guy you know the christian coalition as it was in the late 60s went after them and said no you got to get this guy off the air he looks like the devil and and roddenberry successfully fought to have him there and said it's important that we have people that don't look like us yeah and, yeah. and and that's hard to hard to imagine with what we see now on tv but yeah. but then um
0: it was so it was far groundbreaking. out groundbreaking. yeah so far out in first interracial
1: so kiss on
3: television right
1: yeah heck yeah mention that. <laughs> they had to yeah. be
2: forced by they had to be telekinetically forced to it but what i love about that it happened
1: and what i love it happened it happened
2: what i adore about that is Plato's stepchildren which was a season three season three takes its lumps for a good reason but in season three, Plato's stepchildren, you know, Kirk and Uhura are down in this, um, you know, uh, planet that's controlled by by these <laughs> latter day Romans because they're running out of ideas. But they they forced them to kiss, and the these the same you know Southern evangelicals are saying we won't show that in the South. We won't show that the, the episode won't run, and so they tried to film it in two different ways. They filmed it with the kiss, and one where he turns and you don't see it. Well, Kirk and I'm sorry, Shatner and Michelle Nichols intentionally ruined every goddamn take when it wasn't supposed to for the one that they wanted to show in the South, they ruined like 30 takes in a row by laughing by crossing the right. Kirk kept turning and he'd make a face or he'd stick his tongue out. They were unusable every single take until they had to show kiss. (laughs) And you know, so I don't care what anybody wants to give Shatner grief. Fine. Go ahead. The guy knew what was up.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I don't see modern culture's approach to William Shatner's giving him grief so much. It's, The way my nephew and I mess with each other. Shatner's a treasure. The only evidence of that you need is in Fight Club when Ed Norton is asked who he'd like to fight, if he could fight anybody from history, Shatner. (laughs) Enough said. Enough said.
0: (laughs) Oh, Shatner, he's awesome. Well, like, before we wrap up, a final thought. Speaking of Shatner, there's a pretty famous Saturday Night Live sketch from 1986 in which William Shatner plays himself at a Star Trek convention and is peppered with increasingly obsessive questions about his personal life by, you know, what appear to be fairly unhinged fans. And, you know, finally, the big punchline of the, of the skit is when Shatner snaps at the crowd and he says, get a life. Right. And the crowd, you know, the live studio audience laughs uproariously at this brutal reality check doled out to the fans. And. It's a weird moment. I mean, Shatner has always had kind of a complicated relationship with his Trek fans, but this particular insult towards them, you can imagine the modern cancel culture would have been like a circuit breaker moment, but no, it was forgiven by the fandom, perhaps because uh, that joke and that insult, it landed on kind of an uncomfortable truth. And it's that those who love something the most sometimes can be its worst ambassadors. And you know that made me think about how one of the biggest legacies of Star Trek is how much ground it has laid for modern geek culture. Today, it's not a big thing for people to get up into costume and walk around in public to celebrate a show or a movie or a franchise they love. But back when Trek fans were doing it, it was pretty rare and it was kind of fertile grounds for mockery. Still, the Trek fans endured, fueled by a love for something that simply would not die and which deflected even the cruelest of jibes. Every geek who wears that thing they love on their sleeve owes a debt of gratitude to these early fans but they might also heed a warning as geek culture has proliferated and has gone mainstream, you know, to a certain degree, it's also become toxic. You know, no river can become this wide without getting at least some degree of pollution in it. But it is heartbreaking to see fans act as gatekeepers to their own fandom and to declare which parts of the fandom are worth loving and which parts aren't. And to declare some kind of, you know, culture war on other fandoms in a bid for relevancy and supremacy. Now, here at this podcast, we scheduled this particular episode right after our Star Wars one, uh, in part as a nod towards the intense rivalry we sometimes see between Star Wars and Star Trek fans. But you know, that kind of thing exists among and within all kinds of fandoms. And that's sad. You know, nobody ever created these things we love to pull people apart Certainly not anyone associated with Star Trek, which has done more to promote a message of finding harmony despite our differences than any other fandom I can imagine. You know, the universe is big enough for all of us. There's no seating capacity for our dreams. We've been told to live long and prosper, and so we shall. But we don't have to do it by punching down at each other or deriding why we love what we love or presuming that the thing we hold dear somehow elevates us above all others. That's not what this is all about. When we don our Starfleet uniforms, let us remember why we ever did it for the first time, so we might look to the sky and see a more perfect tomorrow twinkling at us from the distance, to exalt in the promise we might all live up to, and to delight in the journey, no matter how hard or winding or difficult it may be, to see the worth and wonder of the unknown, and to be grateful for those who have adventured by our side. The stars shall always beckon to us, but more than anything, they bid us to Boldly go where no one has gone before, but to do it together. Engage. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. This is Moments of Truth. We'll see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more moments of truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please
3: visit BillCoffin.com.